0: Hi, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we are going to be talking about some of the events of the 1850s that led up to the Civil War. This is Jimmy LaSalle, and with me today, as always, is Jeanne Anzanakis. Jeanne, take it away. So, we have been building up to the Civil War for quite some time. Sectionalism, lack of national unity, and the issue over the extension of slavery into new territories are at an all-time high. The events of the 1850s will make the Civil War all but inevitable. After the Mexican-American War ended in 1848, sectional tensions were at an all-time high. In 1849, the Whigs were victorious in electing their candidate Zachary Taylor as president. Zachary Taylor was a general in the United States Army and he gained notoriety in both the Second Seminole War and the Mexican-American War. Everybody loves a good general to become president, right? His military achievements made him a household name and his ownership of two southern plantations and around 100 slaves gave him the necessary southern appeal. During the first year of his presidency, he was faced with a major conflict. Once again, southern states were threatening secession, this time over the issue of the extension of slavery into new territories. Taylor was a well-known military general, and he threatened to personally lead the army and put an end to such rebellion. He went even further to say that he would see the rebels hanged. He opposed the compromise that was being put forth in the legislative branch. Even though he was a Southerner, he did not support the Southerner's demands. Zachary Taylor's time as president was short-lived. He died in office in July of 1850 after becoming ill. His vice president, Millard Fillmore, became president. Millard Fillmore was the second president from the great state of New York. He was selected as the Whig Party's candidate for vice president under Zachary Taylor to help garner northern support for the ticket. Unlike previous presidents who claimed to come from humble beginnings and, you know, lived in a log cabin, Millard Fillmore actually did. No marketing campaign was necessary to make him out to be a common man. He had limited schooling, and he was really mostly self-taught. There's very little known about Millard Fillmore, and there's as much interest in him, too. He was able to become a lawyer after gaining an apprenticeship, and prior to becoming the vice president and then the president of the United States, he was involved in local New York politics. A member of the Whig Party, he served in the New York legislature and then went out to serve in the House of Representatives where he shared similar feelings to that of Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House at the time, in regards to slavery. He held the belief that only through compromise would it work when it came to the issue of slavery. When he was vice president, he openly disagreed with Zachary Taylor, over the Compromise of 1850. And when Taylor died in office from cholera making him president, he quickly replaced Taylor's cabinet and put in advisors who supported the Compromise as well. The vast territory gained by the United States after the Mexican-American War made it necessary to create yet another solution as to how new territories might be admitted into the Union the Missouri Compromise line or that 3630 parallel was no longer going to work. If you're looking for primary sources to teach this topic, the Library of Congress has great downloadable copies of the Compromise of 1850. In addition to that, if you go to visitthecapital.gov, They have a number of primary source documents you can use. They have a newspaper article from the time period condemning the Fugitive Slave Act. They have Daniel Webster's notes from his speech where he attempts to bring support for the compromise. There's so many wonderful resources out there if you know where to find them. Like any good compromise, there had to be components that would appease both sides Henry Clay yet again steps in, further cementing his status as the great compromiser. Senator Henry Clay was in his 70s at this point. He was supported in this endeavor by a number of other senators who each tried to persuade their section of the United States to support this compromise in the hopes of avoiding war. So you have a lot of heavy hitters here. You have Stephen A. Douglas from Illinois, you have Daniel Webster from Massachusetts, and the infamous John C. Calhoun, former vice president from South Carolina, each giving these passionate arguments on the Senate floor. Calhoun, for example, argued that there was only one way to save the Union, and that was to satisfy the South. He argued that there was nothing left to compromise. He urged the addition of a provision in the Constitution protecting slavery. New territories must be open to slavery, he argued. If not, the two sides should separate. Now, this was not the first time that John C. Calhoun supported the notion of secession. During the nullification crisis from the Tariff of Abominations in 1828, when he was vice president, he first noted that states had the right to secede. Senator Daniel Webster tried to urge for compromise. The union must be preserved and that peaceful secession was not possible. So you can see how this compromise had to provide each side with just enough to get them on board. The Compromise of 1850 consisted of five individual bills, each focusing on a specific issue that members of Congress could either vote to support or choose to abstain from a vote instead of voting no. The first component dealt with the state, well, the territory of California. So California would be added to the Union as a free state. California was part of the Mexican session from the Mexican-American War, When gold was found in California in 1849, thousands of settlers rushed to the area. This was known as the California Gold Rush. This allowed California to reach its necessary population goal of 60,000 in order to become a state. California never went through the same territory procedures as other new states to the Union went through. California petition to be a state it was approved to enter the union as a free state. The second component dealt with the remaining Mexican cession territories. They would allow popular sovereignty to determine how they entered the union. Popular sovereignty what that term means is that settlers of a territory would take a vote and decide for themselves how that territory would enter the union either a free state or a slave state to appease the South, the remaining territories would get to decide for themselves, so that thirty-six thirty parallel would no longer be that determining factor. The third component of the compromise dealt with a border dispute between Texas and New Mexico. You would think that a border dispute in Texas would not have been a national in, you know a national issue, but in you know since it included slavery. Naturally, the North and South each took sides. Texas had claimed that the area known as Santa Fe belonged to Texas. Settlers of New Mexico had hoped to become a state and as such would not allow slavery. So you can imagine that the South quickly came to the defense of Texas and Northern abolitionists to the defense of New Mexico. Under the terms of the agreement, Texas would give up claims to the territory in exchange for $10 million. New Mexico's standing would be determined by popular sovereignty. And if you're looking for more detailed information on this, the Texas State Historical Society is a great resource to go to. The slave trade is the fourth component of the Compromise of 1850. In this compromise, the slave trade would be banned in our nation's capital, in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was our nation's capital. It was our capital's third location. After two stints in the north, a southern location was agreed upon. The states of Maryland and Virginia willingly gave up territory to create the District of Columbia, It's no secret that slave labor was used to build our nation's capital and that slavery existed in Washington, D.C. well into the Civil War. Its location made it a major center for the slave trade. Numerous bills had been proposed to abolish slavery in the capital, but none had succeeded. The Compromise of 1850 ended the slave trade in the nation's capital, but... Owning slaves there remained legal. The White House Historical Association has great information on this topic, and you can get even more details there. Lastly, the Fugitive Slave Act. All citizens had to aid in the capture and return of runaway slaves. If you didn't, you could be fined up to $1,000 or go to jail for six months if a person was thought to be a fugitive slave, they could not testify on their own behalf or provide proof to their freedom. Could you imagine? Only the owner or the person who claimed to be their owner could testify. If that isn't worse enough, judges were paid $10 for every slave sent back and $5 for every person they freed. So imagine what was more likely to happen. You have to consider the impact that this law had. This law forced white Northerners to do one of two things, to either support the institution of slavery, whether or not they agreed with it, or refuse to obey the law and risk paying a hefty fine or be sent to jail. Now, for black Northerners, whether a runaway or a fugitive slave in the eyes of the law, or if you were a freed black person. This new law puts you at grave risk. Do you stay in the North and risk being sent back to your owner? If you are a freedman, how do you prove it? If you stand accused, you can't testify on your own behalf. For some black Northerners, regardless of their status, they left. They fled to Canada, which had already abolished slavery. It was no longer safe for them in the North, where they had lived free for years. So when Southern states do secede, they will specifically call out the Northern states' refusal to protect their property and return fugitive slaves. President Millard Fillmore's enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act made him extremely unpopular with Northern abolitionists. They saw him as a Southern sympathizer, and the South viewed him as not doing enough. At this point, the Whig Party was breaking apart. The party that was created in the 1830s, out of opposition to Andrew Jackson's policies, ultimately broke down over the issue of slavery. Whigs, who had strong abolitionist feelings, joined the newly created Republican Party, which we will get into, and joined another short-lived political party known as the Know-Nothings. So the Know-Nothing Party began in 1854. It protested the growing number of immigrants coming into the United States. Many of these new immigrants were Roman Catholics. The majority of people in the United States at this time were Protestants, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Again, very short-lived, but the party is known for helping to establish the nativist movement in the United States. And when we get into immigration a little later on, we'll, we'll talk about that more. But for the Know Nothing Party, the reason why they got their name is when they would be asked questions, they would simply respond with, I know nothing, hence the Know Nothing Party. Yet another cause of the Civil War is the election of 1852. In 1852, a number of well-known politicians threw their hats into the ring deep sectional tensions and their already established positions on both slavery and the recently passed and divisive Compromise of 1850 made most of those people unlikely to win. Like James K. Polk, Franklin Pierce was seen as a dark horse candidate. Pierce was younger than previous presidents. Some might have even called him handsome. For the record, I am not one of those people. He was from a well-connected New Hampshire family, and he was well-educated. He served in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, and while a Northerner supported pro-slavery views. This combination made him a smart choice for a candidate for the Democrats. Like the ailing Whigs, the Democratic Party was divided over the issue of slavery. You have Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats having different interests, and Southerners supported Pierce instead of the Whig candidate Winfield Scott. And as he was set to begin his term as president, the personal tragedy of the death of his young son and only surviving child gave way to a rather somber start. his presidential term. Like his most recent predecessors, he only served one term. His cabinet included representatives from various sections of the United States, including Jefferson Davis, who served as his secretary of war. For those of you who don't recognize his name, he was the one and only president of the Confederacy. Pierce's vice president died shortly after he was sworn in, and he was never replaced. So there were a number of domestic issues that took place during this time. We have the Gadsden Purchase, which we discussed in our podcast on the Mexican-American War. In this purchase, the United States agreed to pay $10 million to Mexico for the southern sections of Arizona and New Mexico, we wanted this territory in order to help build a southern line of the Transcontinental Railroad. Again, we have to talk about popular sovereignty. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 formally repealed the Missouri Compromise. The territories in the Great Plains region that had been designated as Indian country after the forced removal of Native Americans from ancestral lands in the southeast were now going to be organized into territories and settled so as to further the development of the transcontinental railroad lines that were being built. The question of slavery would be determined by popular sovereignty in these territories. Again, popular sovereignty means that the people who lived in a territory could vote and decide how that territory would enter the Union, either as a free state or as a slave state. This act was pushed by Senator Stephen A. Douglas from Illinois, who had hopes of running for president, but he knew he would need Southern support in order to win. He argued that this would be good for both the North and the South, as it provided an equal opportunity for each side to potentially get its way. Now, here's where knowledge of geography is important. When it comes to states like Kansas and Nebraska, the answer you typically get when you ask someone of their location tends to be eh, somewhere in the middle, right? If, heaven forbid, you had cancer and you ask your doctor, where is it? And they were like, eh, somewhere in the middle, you'd, you'd get a new doctor, right? So you need to get a better grasp of geography of your answer is eh, somewhere in the middle. So for Kansas, it was so close to the slave state of Missouri that it really became a battleground for both sides. The passage of this bill led to violence, an event known as Bleeding Kansas, which took place from 1856 to 1857. You have pro-slavery settlers and anti-slavery settlers, each rushing to settle in these territories ahead of the vote, and it led to extremely violent clashes. Before a constitution could be written and the territory formally entered into the Union, a territorial government first had to be created. So these pro-slavery settlers created a government in Lecompton and anti-slavery settlers established a government in Topeka. Tensions were high and the stakes for each side of the conflict were even higher, the Kansas Historical Society and Territorial Kansas Online. KU. EDU. They are both great resources if you're looking for primary source documents on this topic. They have wonderful letters of settlers on both sides describing the conflict. You have a lot of newspaper articles from the time period. Again, a lot of great stuff. One of the most famous or infamous anti-slavery settlers who went to Kansas was a man by the name of John Brown. John Brown is one of my favorite historical figures. He is an abolitionist. He is a Calvinist. For Calvinists, there was right and there was wrong. There is no such thing as a gray area. For John Brown, he believed with every fiber of his being that when people did something wrong they deserve to be punished. Just to give you some perspective on how deep those feelings went for him, he made his children keep accountings of the bad things that they had done and, you know, then tally up how many lashings were due to them. And every once in a while would tell them like, all right, let's go settle up in the barn. And then they would have to tell their dad how many times he had to whip them. Could you imagine? In 1856, in response to an anti-slavery town being attacked, John Brown led a group of men, including, you know, a few of his sons. They went and attacked a pro-slavery settlement and brutally killed five people. It became known as the Pottawatomie Massacre. The violence wasn't just limited to Kansas. On the Senate floor, um, After giving a speech attacking slavery, Senator Charles Sumner was beaten to a pulp by Southern Senator Preston Brooks with his cane. Northerners, of course, condemned the vicious attack, but Southerners thought Brooks a hero and sent him canes in support. When the smoke cleared, you have more than 100 people killed in Kansas, and Kansas ultimately enters the Union as a free state. John Brown was hunted by federal troops but he is able to flee to the north where he is celebrated as a hero by abolitionists and he goes on to plan yet another attempt to end slavery which we will get into in a little bit so we have to talk about the rise of a new political party the creation of the republican party the republican party that exists today in 1854 The Republican Party comes out of the overwhelming outrage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The Republican Party was established in Wisconsin at an anti-slavery meeting. It was made up of mostly Northern Whigs, Free Soilers, and Abolitionists. One of the goals of the newly created party was to stop the spread of slavery into the territories In 1856, Republicans put up their first presidential candidate, a man by the name of John C. Fremont, a soldier and explorer from California. Franklin Pierce was not renominated by his party. Instead, they put up a man by the name of James Buchanan. Buchanan was well-educated. He came from a well-to-do merchant family in Pennsylvania. He became a lawyer. He was a former member of the House of Representatives and senator from Pennsylvania. And he also served as secretary of state for President James K. Polk. He never married, and so his niece was the White House hostess. When it came to slavery... Buchanan towed the middle line. He supported popular sovereignty, and by the time of his inauguration in 1857, the issue of slavery was really just, it was at its boiling point. There's no greater proof of this as the Dred Scott decision. The Dred Scott decision of 1857 was a Supreme Court case called Dred Scott versus Sanford. The issue in this Supreme Court case, you know, Dred Scott had been born into the institution of slavery. He was owned by a man by the name of Dr. Emerson, who often traveled to different places, some of which were free states. Scott argued that because he lived in a free state, he should be free. So when this case was brought all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court had to decide the following issues before they could even figure out if Dred Scott was a free man or not. So the first issue they had to figure out was, was Dred Scott a citizen? Did residents in a free state make a slave free? And lastly, was the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional? The Supreme Court answered all of those questions in the following way. Dred Scott was not a citizen. He was property. Living in a free state did not make one free. And lastly, the Missouri Compromise was declared unconstitutional because it denied a person of their property. Slavery was technically legal everywhere because you could not prevent someone from bringing their property with them. So while Dred Scott and his wife were not freed in this case, they were purchased by the children of their first owner who were abolitionists and were freed. So Dred Scott was able to live as a free man briefly. On October 16th, 1859, we see one of the final causes of the Civil War. On this day, abolitionist John Brown and a group of over 20 men set out for Harper's Ferry, Virginia. John Brown had planned this whole thing, and his efforts were funded by a group of wealthy abolitionists that became known as the Secret Six. The plan was to attack a federal arsenal in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, seize the weapons, arm slaves, move from plantation to plantation, and freeing as many people as possible. The idea was that it would eventually lead to a full-scale rebellion. The sheer geography of Harper's Ferry made the likelihood of, of success very small. There was one way out, one way in. A fact that Frederick Douglass warned John Brown about when he turned him down in his request to join in on the raid The local Virginia militia quickly surrounded the engine house where John Brown and his men had held themselves up. They were quickly joined by Marines led by General Robert E. Lee, who had killed most of the men and captured John Brown, who was put on uh, on trial and charged with treason against the state of Virginia, attempted slave insurrection murder, serious charges, the trial was covered extensively by the press. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to be hanged. Because of the great media interest in this, only military personnel were allowed for fear that a large crowd of supporters would gather. A local Virginia actor briefly enlisted in the local Virginia militia just to witness John Brown's execution. That local actor was a man by the name of John Wilkes Booth. And if you know that name, that is the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. All of these events contributed to the start of the Civil War. Tensions continued to rise, and the success of the newly created Republican Party in the election of 1860 would be the final straw Outgoing president, James Buchanan, who throughout his presidency attempted to please both sides in order to avoid war, did little to stop southern states from leaving the Union. That would be left up to his successor, Abraham Lincoln. Okay, thank you, Jeannie. You've been listening to some of the run-up to the Civil War, and our next podcast will be the election of 1860, where Abraham Lincoln gets elected president, and then we'll go into the Civil War. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.